Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. Today we are talking to the editors of the vol- new volume, Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. Um, and with me are Nadir Hashemi and Danny Pastel. Danny was the Associate Director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Denver's Joseph Corbel School of International Studies, but he is now Assistant Director of the Middle East and North African Studies Program at Northwestern University. And Nadir is Associate Professor at the University of Denver and Director of the Center of Middle East Studies. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So my first question is very basic. How did this book come about? Well, um, we had been collaborating uh, since we started the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Denver that you mentioned, which was in the fall of 2012, our very first project was a major international conference on Syria, on the multiple dynamics of the Syrian conflict, which resulted a few months later in a book, The Syria Dilemma, which came out in the fall of 2013 with MIT Press and Boston Review Books. And so we were deeply immersed in the Syria debate for a couple of years And one of the things that we kept encountering over and over in the Syria debate, and it really cut across ideological lines, was this lazy assumption that the Syrian conflict was fundamentally a sectarian battle at heart, that it had always been sectarian. Um, Sometimes you would hear even really uh, major scholars refer to the Sunni uprising in Syria or the sectarian civil war in Syria. And we would always push back on this because, of course, um, as people who had studied the Syrian conflict closely, uh, we were sharply aware, as were the Syrians who participated in the uprising, that the first phase of the Syrian conflict in particular had nothing to do with sectarianism, and it had nothing to do with religion. It had to do with the same things that the Tunisian and Egyptian uprisings had to do with, namely um, democratic rights, um, human dignity, and social justice. The demands and the slogans of the Syrian uprising were precisely the same as, as their Tunisian and Egyptian counterparts. So now, of course, this changes over time as the Syrian conflict enters its armed phase at the end of 2011, early 2012, and by 2013, you do indeed have a major sectarian, um, you have sectarian fault lines emerging in much more defined ways in the conflict. But the question that plagued us was, first of all, how did that happen? Because it didn't start that way. So we wanted to map this process. How did it go from a non-sectarian, even anti-sectarian, and certainly cross-sectarian uprising, popular uprising, into a sectarian, uh, largely sectarian conflict. How did this happen? What were the dynamics, the driving forces 
the mechanisms that pushed the conflict in this direction. That was one um, impulse. The other impulse was to push back against what we realized was this new ideological narrative, this conventional wisdom that saw not only in the Syrian conflict, but conflicts across the region in Yemen, in Iraq, that the, this Western narrative that these are just ancient sectarian hatreds playing themselves out as if it had always been this way, as if there were no recent mechanisms that were responsible for pushing the politics of the region in this direction. So those were really the, the um, kind of intellectual coordinates uh, that formed the prehistory of this book. Yeah, and I'd also add that there was just this recurring theme that we would encounter in popular culture and policy debates with respect to the turmoil in the Middle East that sought to explain what was happening in the region, not just as a function of what Danny said, alleged ancient sectarian hatreds, but also this more uh, nuanced narrative that um, sectarianism has always been an enduring feature of Arab and Muslim societies. And as a result of the weakening of control that results from the Arab Spring, where where authoritarian strongmen kept the lid on these ancient sectarian hatreds. Um, now we're seeing an upsurge in um, sectarian violence because these things have now bubbled to the top. So we really wanted to uh, push back against that overarching and dominant narrative that uh, many people seemed to uh, believe. So there's also a precedent from this from my perspective in the academic literature. And I was wondering if you both could speak more about that, because what's interesting about the term sectarianization, which is in your title, um, is the term sectarianism. And I was wondering if you speak more about that. In the academic literature, to the credit of most at least Middle Eastern um, studies academics, the narrative that I just described that we're trying to refute um, is not as dominant as it is in the more popular and policy culture. Um, there is a, um, you know, a discussion of sectarianism and uh, in the academic literature, um, um, but there's been very little, I think, serious um, scholarship on analyzing the historical roots of the contemporary uh, sectarian conflict that we see before our eyes, trying to um, um, unpackage it, trying to ask the critical, I think, social science question, why now? Why is this happening at, at this particular point in time and not before? And also trying to connect it to um, contemporary events that we're seeing um, before our eyes, such as the uh, Saudi-Iran rivalry, such as the the chaos in the various states that Danny just mentioned, and trying to provide a solid social scientific um, uh, narrative and uh, explanation that can give this particular topic um, some solid foundational grounding for anyone who wants to really understand this particular theme at a deeper level. Um, so would you say that this book is primarily aimed at social scientists? It seems like this book has a much more wide-ranging um, aim in terms of its audience. Yeah, I would say both. I mean, we we do try to, you know, it's Oxford University Press um, who's published it in the United States. So um, we do try and, um, you know, appeal to academics. I mean, all of the contributors are first-rate um, academics. But, um, you know, Danny and I both believe, 
and the work of our center um, and in Denver, you know, doesn't believe in writing for small elite audiences. We try to um, appeal to both academics and to people in the broader reading public and to policy analysts. So we're hoping to cover all of those communities in this book with this book. And I can just add to that, that, you know, over the last few weeks since the book came out, I've been um, corresponding and chatting with various journalists. um, And as a former journalist myself, um, I know that world well. And I've been trying to explain the book, you know, provide the elevator pitch um, for what the book essentially argues and why it's relevant to policy debates and how it directly confronts, you know, this conventional wisdom in media uh, circles. So I, I, I feel very strongly that although the book is a very rigorous work of social science scholarship, it is also a book with direct implications for uh, policy and uh, media debates um, that I think, you know, are relevant to the general educated public. Okay, so let's just dig into the actual title, which is sort of the, um, the binding thesis of all the um, different articles in the edited volume, sectarianization. How do you both define it? And um, what did it emerge out of the term for you, both of you? How did sort of formulating the term emerge? Well, sectarianization is a term that um, I credit Danny Postel with coining Um, because that's the first time I have a vivid memory of really hearing the term. And it refers to, in contrast to sectarianism, which sort of implies this overarching, enduring um, 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 attitude that shapes Middle Eastern and Muslim society. Sectarianization, in contrast to sectarianism, um, is an active process that is shaped by political actors operating within specific specific contexts, pursuing political goals that involve the mobilization of people around specific identity markers. And so the term sectarianization um, implies that there are political goals and motives that are at the root of the sectarianization process or the sectarianism that we're seeing in the region today. Um, And that the theme of political authoritarianism, as we discuss in the introduction to the book, is absolutely essential to um, understanding the concept of sectarianization. In other words, it's the authoritarian context of the region and the political um, rulers and elites that are in charge of most of those states that are absolutely essential to understanding Um, how this process unfolds, what the fundamental driving force of it is, and and how, in essence, the concept and the problem that we're facing is fundamentally about politics and not about piety. Yeah, I would just add to that that um, I thought I had coined the term sectarianization, but then I Googled it and found that it had been used a few times in scattered kind of passing references. Um, But we decided that we wanted very much to kind of um, put the term in general circulation and really name this phenomenon in a very forceful way. So that's why it became the title of the book. And uh, it's gratifying to me that it sort of it's one of those um, terms that just kind of clicks and resonates with people, even if they haven't heard it before, which most people haven't, but it just kind of, because of the nature of the word sectarianization, it implies a process that this, it, it de-reifies 
um, and demystifies this um, essentialist, orientalist, trans-historical fantasy that this has simply always been uh, the case or that this explains everything about the politics of the region in naming sectarianization and emphasizing the process it really does um, illuminate the ways in which this is a fairly recent uh, phenomenon. So, you know, not that sectarian identities are recent. They do, in fact, stretch back many centuries. But why, the question we raise in the book is, why have sectarian identities come to define the politics of the region? Why are people mobilizing around their sectarian identities for political ends, and specifically lethal political ends, now Whereas uh, in, in, in the history of the Middle East, this was not actually, uh, these were not the fault lines of the region's politics. Now, that's something I really took away from the book, and especially your introduction, is that there's a difference between a sect, which is a very, you know, it's, it's, it's a very contestable historical concept. But there's a difference between a sect, sectarian, and then sectarianism, which, as you said, is very, it implies that there is sort of a primordialism to um, these different groups, that they've sort of always been at odds with each other. Um, so both of you have sort of touched on this idea of authoritarianism in the region and sectarianization in the region. I was wondering if you could give us a really tangible example um, of any given country in the Middle East or North Africa um, and sort of the process of sectarianization. Well, sure. I think the one, the one case that Danny and I, um, I think, know quite well is actually the case of Syria, which Danny correctly, you know, just identified at the beginning of the Syrian uprising in March of 2011, um, the conflict was not um, sectarian in nature or, or the protesters in the streets were not um, motivated by a sectarian identity. They were motivated by challenging the uh, um, 40-plus-year rule of the House of Assad, and their demands were basically democratic. Um, but what you see in the immediate aftermath of the uprising in Syria is a deliberate attempt by the Assad regime to sectarianize this conflict. Um, and they did it in um, uh, several distinct ways that regrettably um, started to um, sink um, roots and started to unleash a certain sectarianism from below um, in the context of you know, mass violence against um, uh, peaceful protesters. And so, you know, you, you, you have this attempt by the Assad regime to say right from the beginning that this uprising has nothing to do about democracy or human rights. It's about um, radical extremism in the form of al-Qaeda um, um, trying to take over the state. Um, and there's a deliberate attempt by the Assad regime to bring that narrative um, to the attention of the international community. And so you see a policy of um, letting out of um, Assad's jails, um, these radical Salafi leaders who then become um, connected with existing um, Salafi networks in the region. And they become eventual leaders of some of these radical um, opposition groups that are part of the sectarian uh, story in Syria today. And you also have an attempt by the Assad regime really to you know, send a message also to the international community that, look, what I'm the protector of minorities. I'm the stabilizing force here. The other side is fundamentally motivated by these narrow sectarian identities. And throughout the course of the conflict, there were deliberate attempts by the Assad regime to um, use disproportionate levels of force 
against Sunni communities versus Alawi communities who are also part of the early uprising as a way of trying to divide the internal opposition and to create these divisions um, among protesters who were uh, initially united with a common agenda. So, I mean, that's just one example among many. And fundamentally, the context here is the crisis of legitimacy that these authoritarian regimes are facing in the eyes of their own population. They are unable and unwilling to share political power, and so they fall back on a strategy of sectarianization, a deliberate strategy to um, pursue their political thrones and to, to entrench themselves politically. Um, and you see this happening. This broad story happens in almost every country. I mean, Bahrain is another example. It has a very similar story. Um, and I could sort of, um, you know, repeat that narrative in other, um, you know, countries in the region where there's a mix of Sunni and Shia populations. And in the book, there are case study after case study um, maps the precise dynamics by which the sectarianization process unfolded and remains, uh, continues to unfold in uh, each of these countries that we, that we pick. And this is really part of um, what uh, the historian Peter Gay called the cultivation of hatred, right? That the, there's an active process by which um, narratives of the enemy um, of the outsider, of the infidel, of the 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 the, the, um, the 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 enemy from within, the enemy from without. So Nader talked about the Syrian case, and Bahrain is in some ways uh, the same story, but with the other sectarian um, side, which is to say that you know, in the case of the Assad regime in Syria, the enemy is Sunni extremist terrorists, supposedly, of whom there were very basically none um, in the Syrian uprising during that initial phase. But then over time, through a process of top-down sectarianization that the Assad regime actually undertakes, you have a, an eventual sectarianization of the conflict, and you do have Salafi radicals and al-Qaeda and eventually ISIS. But there were none at the beginning of the conflict when the narrative of the Assad regime was that that's what it was all about. In Bahrain, you have the flip side of the coin where you have a Sunni regime um, ruling over a majority Shia population, which rises up um, right at the same time as the other Arab uprisings. And the, what are they demanding? They're not demanding uh, Shia majoritarian rule. They're not demanding um, death to the Sunnis. They're demanding democratic rights. They're not even demanding an end to the regime. They were calling for reforms originally, Sunnis and Shias together in the streets, but what was the Bahraini regime's and its Saudi patrons' narrative about the uprising? This is an Iranian plot to destroy our society. It's a Shia, uh, the Shia crescent is coming to knock down our institutions and tear us apart. These are false narratives, but they, um, they tend over time to take hold. And this is what the book really attempts to do is to map that process. So what I really like about the book, just to return to the actual book itself and how it's structured, is the fact that it's divided into two, well, not really halves, but two different sections. And the first is on the big picture framework, and the second is a bunch of case studies. And I was wondering what inspired that particular structure. You want to take well, that? I'll, yeah, I'll weigh in. Um, well, we wanted to give this topic of sectarianization or sectarianism um, some, you know, historical and theoretical depth. Um, 
case studies are important, but we also wanted to theorize and historicize this particular topic and problem. So, you know, um, Osama Makdisi um, has a wonderful sort of, I think, historical um, chapter at the beginning. Yazid Sayer has a very good sort of 20th century um, historical and political um, analysis of this problem. And then, of course, we have Adam uh, Geyser, who sort of gives us a good sort of uh, religious studies um, analysis and interpretation of this question of um, sectarian identity and how it plays itself out. So we really wanted to have that as a preliminary series of chapters before getting into the case studies. And so I'm really glad that you pointed, uh, you picked up on the fact that there is this basic division um, of the book um, into those two broad sections so that it, it, it provides, I think, the reader who goes through the book from beginning to end uh, a, a deeper grasp and foundational sort of understanding of this particular uh, topic. Yeah, I think that's an important, um, the architecture of the book um, that you noted is very important uh, for the reasons that Nader just explained. But I always say to people that, look, if you don't find the arguments in the first section of the book, our introduction and these historical, theoretical, and big picture perspectives, if you don't find those arguments convincing, that's okay. Just read the case studies because uh, the proof is in the pudding. When you read through the case studies, um, many of which actually contain very theoretical elements, by the way. So, for example, Fanar Haddad's chapter, Sectarian Relations Before Sectarianization in Pre-2003 Iraq, he uses um, a very rich uh, theoretical framework um, to analyze how sectarianization really plays out in Iraq. And several of the chapters um, uh, do similarly. Stacey Philbrick Yadav's chapter on Yemen is deeply theoretical. Um, Toby Matheson's chapter on Bahrain and so forth. But really, the, the, the heart and soul of the book in many ways is these case studies where you see how the sectarianization process plays out, the actual mechanisms at work. And people may, you know, debate Um, the uh, big picture story of sectarianization, the historical perspectives we provide in section one. But I think that the, um, the case studies uh, really speak for themselves and are, are hard to uh, take issue with. No, I agree completely. What I like about the book is that it's the strength of it is that each chapter sort of stands on its own, but together they all plug together and tell this greater narrative of what the process of sectarianization looks like. Um, How did you manage to bring all this diverse and very strong set of um, academics and public intellectuals together? Well, when we came up with the idea for the book, we actually just had a brainstorming session and said, okay, who are the top scholars who have written on these problems? And of course, Usama Makdisi's book on the culture of sectarianism in 19th century Lebanon was, uh, you know, loomed very large in our minds. He's one of the the really key scholars of this phenomenon. Um, So we reached out to him and to our delight, he agreed um, to, uh, we actually brought him to the University of Denver to deliver the lecture that became his chapter. Um, We, but we really mapped out, I mean, Vali Nasser's chapter on Pakistan was something that Nader had read very closely in graduate school and studied um, very, very meticulously. And, you know, Fanar Haddad's book um, on sectarianism in Iraq 
was something that had only been out uh, for a little while, but somehow it ended up on our desk. And I read it and realized we have to ask him to write the chapter on Iraq. Um, you know, and one after the other, we just kind of came up with who, who's the main person on Lebanon? Who's the main person on Kuwait? Frankly, a lot of these ideas came to us by reading the Monkey Cage blog um, because uh, Mark Lynch does a brilliant job of uh, cultivating this this conversation amongst political scientists who study the Middle East and, and various pieces here. Madeline Wells' chapter on Kuwait, um, uh, Stacey Philbrick Yadav's chapter on Yemen, those originally came to us as blog posts um, on the monkey cage that we read and then, of course, reached out to these people. And one of the real delights, I would say, of, of the book, pro the editing process for this book was that we didn't reach out to a single person who said no. We figured we would. You know, when you go after the top scholars, you figure they're going to be too busy. They're going to be um, they're not going to have time to write a fresh chapter. They're going to say, oh, just use something I've already written. But in every single case, uh, these scholars um, said yes, and were even enthusiastic about it. I mean, having Madawi al-Rashid, whose work we've learned so much from, you know, probably the leading authority on Saudi Arabia uh, in the world. I mean, having her in the book was just extraordinary. I have nothing to add. I agree with that totally. <laughs> I mean, that's, that was very comprehensive. Well, thank you both for talking to me today. And my last question, I guess, is, what are you both working on right now? Are you collaborating anymore? I mean, Nader's writing a book about Iran, um, and I think he's editing another book on Islam and human rights. Um, I am um, taking my time to decide. I have a bunch of review essays and book reviews I need to write, um, but I, I have a couple of ideas for my next project. Um, one uh, is actually about uh, the films of Abbas Kirostami. Uh, and another one is about the legacy of the Middle East scholar Fred Halliday. Um, but those are quite a ways, they're just in their incubation phase at this point. So nothing, nothing to really count on yet. Thanks for your interest in the book. Um, appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk about it on your podcast. Oh, thank you both. Thanks so much. <laughs>